How are you doing this morning? All right, baptisms are such an exciting day as we get to welcome more brothers and sisters into the faith with us. My name is Aslan Bouton. This is my husband, David, and we are on schedule rotation here as two, the past, preaching pastors here. So if this is your first time here, your first time seeing us, it's nice to meet you. We are glad that you're here. And we like to preach together when at all possible with our schedules because we think it's fun and we enjoy it. So we're going to get started on our final sermon on prayer for the year. We like to preach in themes here at Northwest. And so this month we have been studying and look at, looking at prayer. And so we had a an overview of what prayer is the first week of the month of keys to effective prayer, kind of breaking down the Lord's Prayer. And then the last two weeks, we talked about the importance of private prayer and how, how necessary that is in the life of a believer to have a private prayer life with the Lord. And so today, to put a bow on this month, we want to talk about corporate prayer and the importance of that. And so we've titled this Enemies to Corporate Prayer, meaning things that keep us from praying together. And I just want to make a note, when, I, when we mention corporate prayer today, that sounds so large and so big and so uh, business-like. What, what we're referencing when we say corporate prayer is simply getting together with another believer to pray. That's what we mean when we use the word corporate prayer today, okay? Because we see all throughout the scriptures how important praying together with believers is. And we can look to Jesus as our example for this. We don't have to look anywhere else. We can look at the life of Jesus and see how important prayer is in all kinds of ways. And I've really been thinking about that this week, and I've been struck by that, thinking about the truth and the fact that prayer was so important to Jesus. And if there was anyone on this earth that would get a pass on prayer, I would think that it would be him, right? Because he was God. He was God's son. We, as Christianity believes that God is three persons in one, three beings in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit make up God. And so Jesus, who is the Son, is also God. So God on earth, I w- in just my natural mind, I would not think, why did he need to pray? He knows the Father's heart. He knows everything. He created every person that he encountered. And so just thinking about that truth today, thinking about the life of Jesus and how important prayer was to him has really uh, just changed my perspective on prayer. Because if, he, if Jesus spent so much time praying, how much more do I need to spend time praying? So before we get into the three enemies to corporate prayer, the three things in us that keep us from wanting to pray together with other believers, let's just look quickly at Jesus' life. And if you go through the, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find many ways that Jesus prayed. You might even find more than I did. I just pointed out a, a few different ways that Jesus prayed. We see that he prayed alone says he often withdrew to lonely places to pray. And that's what we spent the last two weeks talking about, your private prayer life. We see that he prayed in nature. I love this one because if you're someone who's what we call outdoorsy and you like to get out in nature, you do feel this connection with God. I also would like to note that we realize Jesus was often traveling, so he was often in nature. And I like this that we still see him praying because if we only saw Jesus pray in the temple— or wait till he could go to temple to pray, then we might feel like, okay, prayer is for church, and when you're not at church, you don't need to pray. But we see Jesus everywhere he was, in nature, 
spent taking time to pray to God. We see that he prayed with discipline. There's, a, there's an account where he was like talking to his disciples and he said, hey, you guys, stay up, watch, pray with me. Pray for me as I go over here to pray. And he kept coming back to them and what were they doing? Sleeping. <laughs> they kept falling asleep. And at one point he came back and he was like, come on, can you not pray with me for one hour? Can you not stay up one hour? So we see that Jesus was disciplined in this prayer life. And I really love that he chose imperfect people, right? Because if I'm honest, I can way more identify with the disciples' weaknesses than their strengths. I'd like to imagine that I would be like bold before the Sanhedrin and all these, but I more realistically, more honestly can identify with their weakness, falling asleep while praying. I, I have done that. So I'm grateful that God uses imperfect people. We see that Jesus prayed prayers that were not answered. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what was he doing? beseeching God, please, is there any other way? Is there any other way that I don't have to do it this way? That I don't have to die on the cross? But that was not the plan. At the end of it, he said, you know what? But it's not about what I want. It's what you want. So if anyone can take comfort in the fact, anyone knows that if God's prayer wasn't always answered, he didn't always get a yes, I don't need to lose my faith or doubt that God cares about me if he doesn't always answer mine. We see that Jesus prayed all night. That goes with the discipline thing. And, and the last one we're going to point out about Jesus, which is the one we're going to focus on, is that he prayed with others. He prayed with other people. He took Peter, John, and James. And there's other examples, too, of him praying together with other believers. And if you look at the book of Acts, if you study the account of the early church, you see constantly throughout that account that says that the early church, the believers, got together for fellowship and prayer, fellowship and prayer, fellowship and prayer, over and over and over again in the account of Acts. So we know that praying together with believers is important. It is something that we need to practice. So I'm going to do the first enemy to corporate prayer, the first thing that keeps us from praying together, and then David will do the last two. We just have three for you this morning. The first enemy, the first thing that keeps us from praying together with other believers is unconfessed sin. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So very simply, here we see that if we're not confessing our sin, our weaknesses, our struggles to each other, we don't even know how to pray for each other, right? We don't even know. I mean, we can just imagine our mind like, okay, maybe they need prayer for this. But scripture tell us, tells us, confess your sins one to another, to each other. Be open. Be vulnerable about that. Because why? So that you may pray and be healed. Be healed. The areas that you struggle, the bondage you may feel like you're under, you're wrestling with, we receive healing from that, from the body of believers praying together for that. But that takes me, that takes me having to say, having to get real, you know, real, real, not just like pray I get that promotion at work, pray that I'm able to sell my house or get a new house. And I'm not dogging those requests. The Bible says that God cares for all of our needs, right? So we do pray to receive promotion or breakthrough at work or, but we don't want to overlook the fact that we see we are to be confessing our sins, our struggles 
to pray for one another, to see that healing. When, I talk, when I've talked over the years with, with women struggling with this, feeling like they're struggling with the same bondage, the same sin, the same issues over and over, my most common question back to them will be, have you opened up to your small group about this? Do you share in group? How much have you let the women in your life surrounding you that you are living life with, how much have you let them in on that? Have you confessed this to them each time? And surprisingly, most of the time it's like, well, I've said it before, but not, you know, we get embarrassed. We don't want to seem like we're struggling with the same thing again. People are going to get tired or people will judge me if I'm the only one confessing my sin and no one. We need to share our burdens, our sins, so that we can be healed. Imagine how different small group would be if, if the prayers that were being shared or the, the requests that were, we were sharing was of sin, was confession. Imagine the power that is there when it's like, hey, I got to tell you, this is what I am wrestling with. This is what I'm struggling. I need support. I need to know y'all are praying to get me through this so I can overcome and defeat the sin I'm wrestling with in my life. And I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not saying that we have to confess every sinful thought we have. Every, no, I'm not. If, we did, if I confessed every sinful thought I ever had, that, that would be an unending text conversation. You, I'm not talking about every sinful thought, but what you are wrestling through, what you need support through, what you need prayer to defeat and overcome and see victory in, we need to be open. I understand that that's a scary thing and pretty much goes against society, which we're all wanting to put a good face forward instead of being honest about where we're struggling. All right, the second thing that I see in this is that sin... and and being burdened with sin and wrestling with sin often brings shame. And so when you have unconfessed sin of something that you're still wrestling through and failing in, shame kind of makes you take a step back from God. Not because he is walking away from you, but, but we feel that shame and we're kind of like, ah, maybe I shouldn't really be, you know, trying to approach him. And it makes us distance ourselves from people too, right? And we can feel like a hypocrite. So often we won't want to get together and pray with other believers or a small group. Because it's like, if I'm praying that for them and I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm struggling with, the sin in my life, you, you feel like a hypocrite. And so that shame, if you, if you have unconfessed sin that you know you're wrestling with and you don't confess that, it will distance you from people. It's an enemy to corporate prayer. It's something that will keep you from wanting to get with other believers and share in that burden. To, but we need to see that healing come. All right, I'm going to talk about marriage real quick, and then I'll hand it over to David. But I want to say to those in the room who are married that if you're not praying together for your marriage, for your family, you are losing ground. You're losing ground. You have a huge open target for sin and for the enemy and for whatever else is an opposition against you. You need to be praying for each other. Not just private prayer life with the Lord. You need that too. But together as a married couple, confessing your sins and knowing how to pray for your spouse. And I'm going to say something right now that's going to be uncomfortable. And this will probably be the hardest or most uncomfortable thing I say today and then we'll move on so here we go you ready I have often heard over the years many times multiple times it said that I can't share 
my sin, what I'm really struggling with, what my temptations are, what my burdens are, how I've messed up, how I'm tempted, I can't share that with my spouse, with my wife, because she can't handle it. And it will start us down such a bad spiral path that it's just like I can't, I cannot share my sin, what I'm really struggling with, with them. If that's true, here's my encouragement and my push to you, wives or husbands, it's time to buck up. It's time to grow up. Because if your spouse is sharing a sin that they feel conviction of, like I need prayer for this, I need to overcome this, this is a battle that I'm fighting, we cannot and ought not to make that moment about us. And that's tough to do. I'm not trying to be up here and pretend like it's not. But that's really what's happening. When we turn their confession of sin, when they're saying, I'm struggling here, I need prayer for this, and we make it about us. Well, didn't you think how that would make me feel? And now look what you did. I'm not being the partner, the supporting partner, the corresponding strength that my husband needs when I turn his sin into my me. (laughs) When I make it about me. And in the same way, husbands, the same goes to you. And or when your wife goes to you with a sin or a struggle, she's not waiting to get a three-point plan of why, well, if you just did this, then this, then this, you wouldn't be in that, that spot. And I actually had this conversation with you two months ago. And since you didn't take my advice, we shouldn't even have this conversation anymore. That's not what they're looking for. Pray. You need to know so you can... Get on your knees together and beseech the throne of God and say, Lord, I am praying for my spouse to overcome the sin that he is wrestling with. I am praying for my wife. You get up early before you go to work. Put your hands on your spouse. Pray for them. Pray for their struggles. You turn that radio off or the podcast off on the way to work and pray for your spouse that the Holy Spirit would work out in them and help them overcome the sin that is easily besetting them. And so we like to picture marriage like this, like, you know, to be a strength and support to each other side by side, like how we might walk through a mall, you know, side by side. That's great. That's cute. I love it. You're cute. But this, this is really how you should picture marriage and prayer and being a support to each other, that corresponding strength, that he has my back, he has my weaknesses covered, and I have his back, and I know the weaknesses he has, and I'm praying for them, and we're both looking out, so there are, Lord willing, there are no blind spots in our marriage where we're not expecting where the enemy might come up and try to attack, or sin, not even the enemy, just my own sin, that is right there waiting at the door, waiting to overtake me if I'm not serious about it. There's no blind spot. Now, consider what I just said to be true about marriage. This verse isn't even talking about married people. This verse is talking about the church. So multiply that, that we've got each other's backs. There's no weak spots here. There's no blind spots that we're not aware of. And multiply that with the church, the church community. All standing back to back saying, I see your weak spot. I've got you covered. I'm praying for you today. I'm praying for you this week that you are going to overcome this thing that you've been wrestling with since you were a teenager. That is the picture we see the importance of corporate prayer. Praying together that we will receive the healing that God promises us. But he uses people. He uses the church. We need community we need a place to confess our sins so that 
we can be healed and see victory. All right, David's going to take us to the last two. So our enemies, they're ancient. Um, they're, they're not new. Enemies to corporate prayer and to the church in general are not new. They're not new things. They don't change over time. They're always these ancient things. And uh, it just happens to new generations of people. So I just want to say that. But the first enemy that I'm going to discuss is pride. And pride is that attitude of the heart that walks into a room. And the, that heart, when it walks into that room, it's thinking only of itself in its own self-promotion, its own uh, making sure that it gets across to the, the lowly that are there, how important it is. And it likes to talk about itself a lot. I have a, uh, somebody I, I love dearly that calls me and they'll, they'll tell me everything about their life and they'll say, and that's all I know. And I'm like, all right, no questions here? You good, you got it all out? All right, see ya. You know, it's like the, the proud heart thinks only of its own of itself. It doesn't think of questions outside of itself. It doesn't think about engaging with the people and, and getting to make sure that those people feel and realize that they're more significant than that heart. That's, that's pride. I could say a whole lot more about it, but that's pride. Deep down, the proud heart doesn't really truly believe that it needs God on a moment-to-moment basis, which means prayer is an occasional thing for the proud heart. The proud heart doesn't like to pray with other people. It doesn't think that it needs other people. Uh, There's a, I have a a really cute example, my daughter. Uh, She came home from VPK, and she likes to, like, teach us what she learns in VPK. Like, like we're idiots. Like, we have no idea this basic stuff. And sometimes we're surprised at how little we know. But anyway, she, she, she had learned something that day, and she came home, and she goes, Dad, Daddy, um, I discovered that I am the smartest girl in my class. And I was like, teachable moment, great. So I get down on my knee and I say, Who t- did your teacher tell you that, that you're the smartest girl in the class? And she goes, no, daddy, I had to tell her. <laughs> and it's cute, right, until she grows up, right? Now, the, the great thing is we all develop filters, right? And we all don't just walk into the room going, Hey, did you know I'm the smartest one here? We find different ways to let people know that. But our filter gets better, but our hearts don't always mature because we still think it. Don't you, have you never been in a room where you're like, I'm definitely the smartest person here. This is the DMV. Okay, I could run the place, right? So you definitely do it. Don't pretend like you came to church all holy, okay? You all do it. But the proud heart constantly thinks that way and promotes itself, which is why it doesn't pray with others. Uh, One of the excuses that my mind has conjured up in its brilliance is I'm too busy to make time to pray with other people. And I've used that excuse. I know people who still use that excuse. But the problem with that statement is when when you make that statement, what it equals is I have constructed my days on earth with the time that I've been given, and I have prioritized my life in such a way that prayer with the community doesn't have its opportunity. It's like going to your employer. I'm assuming everybody here has been employed. Otherwise, let's talk about some other things, like how to find a job, right? So I'm assuming everybody's been employed. 
would you ever think to go to your boss and go, yeah, I, uh, I know you hired me for this task, but I'm going to do what I want today. I've got my list of things that I'll accomplish, irrespective of the fact that you have other things on your agenda. I got it under control. You just go away. Would you ever do that? If you did, you wouldn't have the job the next day, right? You'd be let go. You'd be fired. But we often do that with God, and he's kind of in charge of everything. <laughs> but we will make it this thing that we believe that I, I don't have time for the thing that is spoken about so frequently that you can't ignore it. You could try to ignore it, but you are confronted, if you're reading scripture, with this, this compelling, this drawing into, this lifting of importance of prayer up. You can't get away from it. Or there's another, um, another example of what seems like humility, but it's really pride, is I'm just, I'm embarrassed because I, I, I don't want to pray with other people because I think they're better at it than me. Like there's, 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 there's ladies that do that for the church and I can't, I don't want to impose upon them my presence and my inadequacy. And what that does, that attitude is really just, it's caring about itself and not the burden that needs to be lifted. Right? It's, it's going, I, I, I feel a little inadequate. Well, you are, but God uses the inadequate. He constantly uses the inadequate. In fact, the people that are praying feel the same thing. They just push, push past it. They just go, I got to grow up. I got to get over that. So those excuses, just they, they cannot be used anymore. The fact that you are just so busy can't be used anymore. I've ruined it for you. Congratulations. You can't use it ever again. I'm the ruiner. <clears throat> Another excuse is I'm in a different place socioeconomically, uh, they're more awkward just socially than I am, or they can't identify with me because of how great it is I am at what I do. So I, I can't, I can't, you know, I, I just, it doesn't feel like a right fit with these people. Could you imagine if God did that? He'd never have come. <laughs> you go, they're not on my level. None of us are. We can't ever attain that. But what we see is Jesus going to less educated. <laughs> Nobody's more educated than God. The guy that made the brain did not go to the smartest. He did not use it as an excuse not to engage with people. The less educated didn't do that. And what's interesting is for us, when we place those barriers around groups to join or people to gather with, we may, those things might even be true. You might actually be a lot less socially awkward. In fact, it's probably very common that you run into that. But it doesn't mean that you're more spiritually mature than them. So you could be missing out on receiving from and giving to people who are going to really do good for your heart. And that, that is a, a big thing to miss out on, and we shouldn't let our own pride get into the way of that. When we say things like, I want to find other people to pray with or another group to join because this one's just, they're not like me. It's, it says, I care more about my own comfort than my neighbor. And could you imagine you only have one dinner for the rest of your life, one flavor, and it's only got salt on it, just only that. How bland would eating be for the rest of your life? And it's like that with people. If all you have is the same people around you, the same kinds of likes, nobody to bring in a different perspective, you don't have a flavorful life. 
I love the group that I'm a part of because I've got people that have a different skin color than me, a different perspective than me, a different upbringing from me, a different spiritual background than me. And it brings all of this clarity together because it just makes an interesting group. That they're different is good. We're united on some essential things, but that we're different is good. So we can't use those things as excuses. What we do see in Jesus is an example and a posture that he took. And Paul says it wonderfully in Philippians. So let's read that together. Do not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. God humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we can't see in Jesus a justification for putting more importance on you than another person. Can't do it. There's no excuse for it. He created every person he ever interacted with, and he lifted those who needed help. There were some people whom he put his hands on that the culture said they're unclean beneath you. Don't touch them. He went to them. So in your own mind, I want this to really stick. In your own mind, when you encounter somebody that your brain starts to just go, uh, it's not really worth my time. They're not really, they, they don't deserve this. When you do that, think about Jesus at the well with the Samaritan. Think about him with those who the society were saying were unclean, don't touch. We can't do it. This leads us to our last point, which is lack of community. This is another ancient enemy to corporate prayer. Galatians, this is Paul speaking. And Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? He actually says it a little earlier. He says in a different way. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I know me very well. I've been with me for 36 years. Very familiar with me. I love me. If you don't think I love me, you're wrong. I love me. I know how I think, I know what I like, I know what I like to eat, ribs. I love them, if you want to make them for me, I will gladly receive them. So I know me. Scripture says this, and this is what it means. Love your neighbor as yourself. How well do you know anybody other than you? Do you know anybody even in the direction of that? Because it's not just love them by like, leave them alone, don't impede on their, it's actually get into a scenario where you know somebody else so well, not just your spouse, that you know what they like, what they don't like. You could speak their mind on a matter. Do you know anybody like that? How about this? A little homework for me. It's not in the questions after. Go to your spouse or somebody who really knows you well and go, do you see me ever pursue another person like that? To where I actually try to know. Because how can you know their burdens if you don't know them? We don't come to church like everybody just come in pouring their heart out like, oh, this is who I am. All of us come in with this, this like, hey, it's Sunday, let's worship and like, let's tell everybody it's all going good. And it isn't. 
It's not always all going good, which is why we have to meet outside of this room. We need to get together away from all of this so that we can actually say, I'm, I'm in trouble <laughs> and I need some help. If we don't ever have that interaction, then all you're doing is playing church. I like what Leonard Ravenhill says. Um, you could do yourself a lot of good and go read something that he wrote or watch something and you go, oh, this guy's tough. But he said this once and it stuck with me. He said, the person who isn't praying is playing. If we're a church that doesn't pray together, we're just playing church. We're just acting like we're spiritual people. And I have lived that. <laughs> I have lived where I just show up and I'm playing. I'm playing all of you. And I'm like, uh, just tell everybody, that doesn't do anything for me or you or the community that we're a part of. So let's get beyond playing and let's get to praying. One thing I don't want to get away from is the second half of this verse, which is, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is, all right, this is how I know Christianity is true. It tells me you ain't nothing. You're not something. You're nothing. Even our, even our founder, he made himself nothing. Are you like him? Or do you think that you're something? Because if, if you're just here because you think you're something, you've got it all wrong. You missed it. It says, if anyone is something, thinks he is something, he is nothing. James, brother of Jesus, lived with God, didn't even know he was God. He's like, yeah, I lived with him, couldn't figure it out. And he's like, he says in chapter four of his, his letter, he says, you know, and I'm thinking like, he's probably thinking, I lived with him, couldn't figure it out. And, and he's talking to other people. He says, you guys think that like, you know something. You don't even know what tomorrow is. You don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. So when we get all arrogant and proud, we're nothing. That's what scripture says. In fact, do you, want, do you want to know real, do you want me to, I'll tell you what I really think. I know that our faith says that we're actually, like when we think we're something, you're actually so bad, so bad, God died. You killed him. That's how bad you are. Have you ever thought about it like that? Like the person that like, thinks that I'm really great, you caused his death. That's huge. That's big, right? So if you ever pump yourself up so great, you're like, oh, I, I went to um, Reformed Theological Seminary and I know all this, in it, or I went to Asbury, or, I went to, or I've, I've been a missionary. You still caused his death. Congrats on that record, right? But, so that keeps us from getting like too big in our own minds. But you all, I don't want you guys to walk away just going, oh, I'm a God killer. Yeah, that's, so I got out of the sermon today. I'm terrible. Going to hell. You are also so valuable to God that he paid the highest price he could for you. Okay? Keep your balance. You start getting too proud, I killed him. You start, you start getting a little too like beating yourself up, but man, he died for me. You know, it's, it's a beautiful balance that we have with this faith. No one else has anything like that. I love this. You can't say I want to live in a Christian community but then think you're better than anybody. None of you. The, the pastor that gets up here and preaches from week to week is not better than that person or that person or that person. In God's eyes, equal value. Done. Different role, equal value. You go to a small group of people who are actually seeking God and they're beneath your strata, get over that. They're getting stuff done. 
You want to be a part of that. That stuff's going to last. That's beautiful stuff. Not picking the community that's worthy of you. If you ever find a community that's worthy of your presence, don't tell me where it is. I don't want to know it. Because there's no place like that. There's no place that's worthy of your presence. 1 Thessalonians says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Real question for everybody out there. If you just like casually attend and never plug into any community, how, can, how on earth can you do that? How? Tell me. You're not there long enough to find out who's got a discouraged heart. You're not around somebody in, in their life. That's why one of, the, one of the things that I love about my wife before I even married her is she's like, I want, I want to love people. That's one of the things I could tell about her that she, she wanted people in the house. And I'm like, man, I got to consider that people in my house. I like to just be, a, you know. I like to just have my casual time. We invite people in our house. They see how we live. We see how they live. And like real relationships form. I love this. I, I, I love it. I've lived without it. And I've lived with it. And I prefer to live with it. Because we actually see people's lives change. And it's an encouraging thing. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Praying together is one of the most powerful things we can do to develop unity in a church. It exposes that there is unity at all, and it also deepens it. One of the things that we're all excited about, and I know you guys are, we're excited about it, is we, we've bought property. We're gonna go build a bigger building in order to open up the doors wider to get a fatter bride in the door. You know, like we wanna grow the church. And this is one thing I want to say I love about our church is all this stuff that I'm saying, I actually see it. You know, like I'm, I'm, this is not a big rebuke. I hope it's not coming across that way. I hope it encourages us deeper into this. But I see that this church does this. But if we only coast on the success of having done it in the past and we don't make it priority and push it into the future, we're just going to have a big building with the same number of people doing not, nothing more. And I want nothing to do with that church. I'll leave. I'll go to a different place. If that's all we're going to do is settle. I'm out. I'll convert to something else. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I won't. This is it. This is the truth. It's the way of the truth. But I want to be a part of a community that continues to push that forward. One of the things that I've, I've learned from being shoulder to shoulder with people in our group is it is tough. It takes a lot of commitment from me, more than I thought it would. And had I known all the commitment, I probably would have not done it. But now being on this side of it and, and, and walking with people for years now, I've seen people who have lost parents, siblings. I've seen them have children, seen them have children with, with difficulties that are going to the hospital. We get called in the night. We get called in the day. We're constantly having to counsel. But we are also getting to see with our brothers and sisters amazing victory happen. People who have not been... Christians becoming Christians through a lot of prayer happening and lifting them up, and I would not trade that for anything else. And I hope that you would want that more, and I trust a lot of you have it, but I hope that you would hunger for it. More than anything, let's seek God with other people to watch their victories and celebrate it with them. That's what this life is for. That's why you're here. So if you'll stand 
Let's pray. And what I want you to do is something very uncomfortable, which is more listening to me. But I want you to put your hand around the shoulder of the person to your left or right, and I want you to pray for one of those people. So somebody's getting left out. Sorry, middle people. Somebody's gonna have to choose, and you're getting, I'm kidding. Pray for both people. But I want you to pray what I'm going to say now for that person. Stop thinking of you. Pray for that person. Are you with me? Lord, what I wanna see for my neighbor is that they thrive, they, they experience your presence, that they would experience your grace, your forgiveness and mercy, that you would give them more clarity on what your word means for them, that they would become a deeper part of this body of believers, that they would seek to find those who are disheartened and encourage them, that you would place them in a, a moment when bad news strikes and they could be strength for them, for their neighbor. Lord, I thank you for my neighbor. I want to see them blessed by your hand. If pride is welling up in their heart, Lord, root it out, expose it, and remove it. In Jesus' mighty name, we say amen.